Let's pray together. Our God and Father, this is a day of challenge and struggle in so many ways, but you are God. You are the God who created all that is. You are the God who sustains all that is, upholding the universe with your powerful word. You are the God who has named every star, as the scriptures tell us. You place the sun and planets spinning in their orbits with such regularity that we can measure our very minutes and seconds by them. Truly, there is no one like you. You are worthy, and we adore you. You are a God of unmatched power, wisdom, and might. You are a God of boundless love and abundant grace, as we've been singing through the morning. Thank you that where our sins were overwhelming to us, your grace was even more overwhelming and will always be. And to be forgiven everything for Christ's sake is a privilege we really cannot comprehend, but we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the blood you shed on Calvary's cross. We thank you for the price that you paid for our redemption. We thank you for the water and the blood that flowed from your side, saving us from wrath and making us completely pure. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this day for our nation, in particular for our president, for his cabinet, for our elected leaders and appointed judges, that truth and justice would prevail. We are weary, Father, of the political posturing and even, even the spin that from our, our elected officials through the media we deal with every day. It's confusing to us and it's difficult for our hearts to bear. Oh, that our leaders would walk in truth, that they would lead with integrity and model the kind of humility that you have promised to bless. Have mercy upon our nation, Lord. Great God and King, it is not simply our leaders Uh, who are in need of your touch, but we ourselves as citizens of this country are in need of your mercy. There are a thousand ways that we have ignored you, defied you, rebelled against you, and we ask that you would have mercy on us from those secret sins that we believe are hidden from your sight as well as all others to even the brazen defiance of your laws. Forgive us, we pray. Show mercy. We pray for your churches that are scattered around the globe today, meeting in all kinds of settings under all manner of conditions. Would you please bless the preaching of the gospel and let the singing and prayers and reading of the scriptures, the sharing of the Lord's table and baptisms that will uh, ensue all throughout this particular Lord's Day. Let it be blessed of the Spirit and let it result in the glory and fame of Jesus Christ spreading. We pray that you would bring sight to the blind and strength to the weak, comfort to those who sorrow, and life to those who are spiritually dead. Build your church, Lord Jesus, and build it here in Utah. Cause your spirit to move in power today, bringing repentance and faith as it is so desperately needed. This state needs a Pentecost, and we plead with you, Father, for the sake of your dear and one-of-a-kind Son, to send the Spirit in this way today in our community and beyond. We ask your blessing over our little family of churches for Gospel Grace Church in the heart of the city. We pray that you would pour out your Spirit on them this day for Gospel Peace as a new work up in Logan. Empower and bless and build. These churches are dear to us for Christ's sake and we thank you for that partnership you have given to us. Would you bless now? Finally, we pray for the members of this dear church family, 
Uh, we ask in particular for Lizzie Adam and her family this week as they gather for her grandmother's funeral this Friday. Spirit of God, would you descend upon this household with comfort and peace and let them know your presence in all things. We ask that as you draw near to them and they to you, that there would be a, a remarkable sense of your presence with them in all things. And now, Spirit of God, fall fresh on us right here, right now. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Illuminate our minds that we may know your truth. Awaken our hearts that we may know your presence and quicken our wills that we may readily believe and obey all that you reveal to us this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please open your Bibles to Romans 9. Romans 9. Verse 3, let me back up a little bit. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. My father turned 85 this past week. That hardly seems possible uh, to him or to us, and I'm thankful for him in many ways, and so thankful uh, for the, the love that he has shown to my three sisters and me through the years, and now to uh, each of our spouses and grandkids and, and great-grandchildren. I called him this week uh, on his birthday, and we chatted for a little bit. I'm thankful even that I was able to see him in the beginning of the September, and God has given him really good health. You know, if he were here, he would say, well, you know, I'm 85, and things don't work the way they used to, but, you know, if he walked in the room, I don't think you'd peg him at, at 85. One of the things that I'm really thankful for, though, is that even from a very young age, he taught my three sisters and me that he's dad, and we're kids, that my mom was mom, and we were children under their authority. And you know, every young person, at least at some point, for me it came in the teenage years, you know, you, you start to think about life for yourself and come up with some opinions and conclusions and even questions, and, and sometimes your, your dad won't be able to understand or, or answer all of those questions to your satisfaction. Sometimes that leads teens to think that they have greater understanding about life and the world and issues and all than their, their you know, poor old dad has. And I went through that phase. And as many have said in various ways, you know, the older, uh, the older you get as a child, the smarter your parents actually become. Uh, and I would say that's true of my dad uh, and my mom, who is with the Lord. But I'm grateful that he taught us to respect him even when we didn't fully understand him. And there were those occasions where my dad would kind of like bring out the nuclear weapon to end all debate and conversations and discussion. And you've probably been there with a parent and some of you try to employ this and maybe you're tired of employing this. But there does come a point sometimes where a dad will look at a child as my dad looked at me from time to time and say, son, you're not gonna fully understand this, but this is the way it is because I'm dad. And, and that's when you're like, okay, discussion is done. And, and we're not going to argue about this any longer. Dad's in charge of this whole operation, whatever it might be. And, and either he's tired of trying to explain to me or can't fully put it into words. And every dad has been in that position where you, you look at a child that you love or you look at a family that you really do care for. And you're not even sure you can articulate it and put it into words. But your dad's sense is just like on full alert. And you're like, this is what we're going to do. And though the family may be alter, offering some suggestions, you're not going to do that. Because this is right, not that. Now this passage is a little bit like one of those moments where God steps forward and says to his creation and to humanity who is created in his image, but he steps forward and, and in so many words says, I'm God and you're not. Let's get this straight. I do what I believe and know is best. I exercise my wisdom. I exercise my sovereign power. And he does also insert here, I exercise my mercy. I'm going to tell you straight up that there are things about this passage that I don't comprehend and I'm sure never will. 
wrestled with some of these truths for a long, long time. And yet at the same time, the fact that I cannot fully comprehend what is in this passage or even bring some truths together where they make perfect, consistent sense in my mind, that actually heartens me. Because the day that you and I as imperfect, finite creatures with limited wisdom, limited experience in this life and in this world, the day that we believe we understand God from side to side and top to bottom, you know, and, and, and comprehend all that he is, is the day that God actually dies. Dies, why would you say that? Yeah, because finite creatures like us will never fully comprehend the infinite, eternal God. And that's who's speaking here. So I lay that out at the, at the beginning, not to discourage anybody or to kind of shut down conversations or questions that we might have because Paul is actually gonna work through a series of, of three particular questions. We looked last week at the beginning verses in this particular chapter of the great sorrow and unceasing anguish that Paul has as he continues to preach the gospel and he's particularly sorrowful about his own people because he was a Jewish-born man, and he looks at the, the Jewish nation that he's a part of and how few of them seem to be responding in faith to the truth that is recorded for them in the Old Testament and even the New Testament as it was being written in that particular period. And it was quite a remarkable thing, and you can go back to verses one, two, and three and even see his heart as he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. There's great anxiety, great pain in Paul's heart. But you know, there are also some perplexing questions that arise, both for Paul and others of us who go through the scriptures. Now, I I wanna, um, as we Ponder that for just a moment. Uh, Verse three, where Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Remember last week we said he ultimately didn't have to do that because that's what Jesus did. Christ was the one who fell under the curse of God the Father and was cut off for our sakes. And so we, we cannot go to the cross to take the place of someone else that we love, but we can bow in much the way that Paul did at the foot of the cross and pray for others to come to find Jesus. It's a powerful image to me as I think through this verse, but now I actually wanna step back even from the specifics for a moment and give you a little bit of an overview because as I said last week, really chapters 9, 10, and 11 need to be taken in, in one big piece but that's really hard to do. So let me give you just a little brief way to uh, a helpful organizing of these three chapters. And we're in chapter nine for today and we'll finish off most of it and grab a little piece of it next week, God willing, with chapter 10. But Paul is addressing Israel's fall and God's purpose of election. And that word election just simply has reference to a choice that God makes. And we're gonna explore that a little more fully this morning. And then number two, if if we think of chapter 10 primarily as Israel's fault, that they've actually disobeyed God as he's led them to that place of faith in the coming Messiah, that they willfully rebelled against that. And then finally, in chapter 11, Paul speaks very specifically of of Israel's future and God's long-term design. And that's where Paul actually says something quite remarkable that though Israel at that particular time and even in our day and age seems largely indifferent to the gospel and and, um, willingly uh, ignorant of it, God actually has a plan uh, 
uh, that is gonna result in the salvation of this nation. Well, that, that leads Paul then to this great doxology at the end of chapter 11 where he is praising God for his wisdom and his generosity. So there's an overview. And I even, I put that picture of a, a distant snow-covered peak uh, as a visual reminder that we're, we're way back from the summit of these three chapters. We've got to make our way through some challenging uh, scripture pathways, if you will. But we're going to come out into a really spectacular place at the end of chapter 11 in a couple of more weeks, God willing. So do your best to, uh, even as we, it'll feel like we're getting bogged down a little bit this morning, uh, but it's with a view of making progress to a really spectacular summit of truth at the end of chapter 11. So the Jewish rejection of their promised Messiah is not only painful to Paul's heart, but it's perplexing to his mind. It's perplexing to us how so many people uh, could seemingly just reject the word of God when he said it's powerful. So let's, let's go back to the text here, and I want you to look with me, first of all, at verses 4 through 13, where one of those first uh, perplexing questions arises out of some truth. In verse 4, Paul begins to recount the great privileges of Israel. And, and it seems like with all those privileges and all the promises that God said about his people being saved, and, and then they're not actually doing it, is God's word failing in some way? The appearance might be that, that God's word actually is failing. And so in verses 4 and 5, the privileges that Paul makes mention of seem wasted on these people. And look at them with me. They're Israelites. And, and that is even in opposition, if you go back through the history of Abraham, he had another son uh, by uh, a handmaid, Hagar. The son's name was Ishmael. So these are Israelites, not Ishmaelites. They've been adopted. They have seen the glory of God personally as he appeared to them on several occasions. They've received the covenants, that is the special promises and agreements of God to bless the descendants of Abraham, which which many of those did unfold for them. Then Paul says they've received the giving of the law, and not just the Ten Commandments, but everything that accompanied it. The statutes, the ordinances, the explanations, the case law, if you will, that told them exactly what God desired for them. Here's the path of life. Walk in it. They receive the worship, the worship of the tabernacle first, and then the temple with the consecrated priests and the ordained sacrifices. All of those were pictures of God's great love and provision for a sinful nation like Israel that had been held in captivity by Egypt for 400 years. Slaves was their identity. And yet God rescued them and brought them out and gave them this spectacular form of worship. And then Paul says the promises, which God had declared to be irrevocable for those who would believe and obey. God gave them the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and beyond. These are great heroes of the Old Testament. Their lives really are quite remarkable. They're the visible demonstration that God is merciful to a household of idolaters, because that's what Abraham was before God appeared and said, Abraham, I am God. Live your life before me. And Abraham did. And ultimately, the greatest privilege that they received, as Paul notes here, was not just the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he comes then, at the end of verse 5, to the fact that the greatest privilege is that the Christ himself was descended through this line. 
And then notice how Paul inserts this little word of praise, of doxology, as well as powerful truth. The Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. The privilege of the Messiah himself. God come in flesh. Not some great individual or hero who achieved divinity at some point, but rather God who created all, descending into this world, into the particular nation of former slaves, identifying with them completely. What a privilege. And we might say, but to what end? Well, that's one of the perplexities. So look at verse 6. Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. He, he's anticipating that somebody's going to step forward and say, but for what purpose? It all seems wasted on this nation because they have largely rejected God at the time that Paul is writing this particular letter. Well, that's where he guides the conversation. And notice this with me, if you will. He says, first of all, in the middle of verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What? Is that, is that double talk? I mean, that's like saying, well, not everybody born in America is an American. And there might be some exceptions to that, but that would cause you to scratch your head and say, wait a second, I, I'm not sure I understand. Well, look at verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and now he's going to quote Moses from the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here it comes. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of of the promise. You see, uh, the, the salvation of the nation of Israel was not a matter of the right DNA. It would be just like us saying, well, I was born into a household where my parents were followers of Jesus, so I guess I'm one too. No, just your birth into that family line doesn't matter ultimately regarding your spiritual destiny. Something else has to happen. Paul's going to explain this more fully, but he, he turns it away from those national privileges to the promises of God. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So there, there may be this perception of the word failing, first of all, but in reality, God is actually moving his purpose forward, and he actually says, I, I chose one brother over another before either one of them had an opportunity to do something good to impress me. Before either one could choose evil and walk away from me, I had a purpose that was unfolding, and it would ultimately be through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob's son Judah, and then a descendant of Judah's named David, the greatest king in Israel's history, and, and then multiple generations after that, it would ultimately be the Christ who would come. He's the ultimate chosen one. And that's the purpose that God had in view, and all those promises were tied to the coming of that particular Messiah. So one of the things that the Lord is doing here through Paul is actually closing the door on a wrong uh, conclusion we might reach as people that, well, God must have seen the great potential within you or me, and that's why he made salvation available to us. Now, God's choice is exclusive of any work that you or I would do. Now, I do want to take a quick look um, at verse 13, because Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament prophet Malachi, 
That little phrase or that little sentence, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. That's troubling for a lot of us, isn't it? Like, did God just arbitrarily say, I don't like that guy? I really like this guy. Well, not in the way that you or I do that. You remember those occasions when you were younger, maybe some of you, whether in the schoolyard or pick up basketball, and you'd, all, you'd pick two captains and you'd line up, and, and it was painful to be one of the last one's chosen, wasn't it? Because that choice was an indication that your skills weren't up to whatever expectation the captains thought they should be. And, and sometimes if they even said, it's, you know, it's four on four and there were nine, somebody was in trouble. It's really painful. And if you demonstrated that you didn't have skills, even though you might have been picked, you know, next time around, you're, you're shoved down to the end of the line. Sometimes you were not picked because you were considered, you know, a rival or outside the circle of friendship or whatever it might be. And that was always irritating too, you know, to realize I'm not getting in any game regardless of the skill I have because I'm not one of them. It would be easy for us to impose those kinds of experiences or human understanding on what's taking place here. But Paul is actually using uh, it, it would be a Hebrew idiom, to be really technical. We have all kinds of idioms that we use in our day and age, things like everything from every cloud has a silver lining uh, to you just need to bite the bullet. Those would be examples of present-day English idioms. But there was an interesting idiom in, in Hebrew language, both spoken and written, that appears, and, and you're actually seeing one here. I think, I think Malachi, and Paul's quoting him, was doing the same thing, ultimately, that Jesus did, as it's recorded in Luke 14, 26, where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if you take that literally, you would think, you know, Jesus is contradicting himself because he says in another place, two great commandments, love God with all your heart and love others as you love yourself. So is Jesus confused at this moment? Has he forgotten the commandments regarding love that he now turns around and says, unless you hate all these people, you cannot be a follower of me? Well, Jesus would never command us to love others as we love ourselves and then turn around and contradict himself in the way that I'm suggesting at this particular moment. No, he's actually using an idiom to make a greater point. And we must not think of God's hatred as an emotion that, that we feel in response to the way somebody looks at us, speaks to us, treats us at a particular moment, but rather an action that has reference to God's sovereign choice of one brother over another. The truth is he did choose Jacob for blessings that he did not choose Esau for. And we need to guard our hearts against assigning to God some kind of imperfect emotion or some kind of you know, as if he had a little temper tantrum way back when where he's like, I don't like that guy and I like this guy. At the same time, we need to recognize that he did make a choice that brought special favor and blessing to one and it excluded the other. Back to the text though and what Paul is making abundantly clear is that when God purposes and then promises to do something, it is effective whether we see it or not. But this brings us to another potential objection. So look at verse 14 with me. And that is, that God's choice appears to be an injustice. And so he actually asks the question, is there injustice on God's part? 
Now let's make sure we understand the term here. Injustice has reference to failure to adhere to some kind of moral law or framework. An unjust deed or an unrighteous work could be in view. And so we might even make this question a little more specific. Is God's choice of one brother over another unfair? Is God's choice of Israel over all other nations unfair? Well, Paul answers this question very quickly, but he is actually going to give some reasons for that. The answer to this is by no means. Or some of your English translations may say, of course not, with an exclamation point. Like, that's unthinkable. And, and it is unthinkable because God is just and holy and true and righteous in all of his ways. So for us to conclude that he must have been unjust means to suggest that God is not actually the God he has revealed himself to be. Now the little word for is an indication that there is a, an, an ex, there's an explanation coming as to why Paul would say by no means. And he's actually going to begin to build out that moral framework for us to understand how God could make the choice that he made between those two brothers or make the choice that said, Israel is my special nation, no others are. And here it is. God's sovereign choices are based, first of all, in his perfect character or perfect nature, and the first attribute that Paul puts forward is that God is merciful. Look at verse 15 with me. Paul is quoting the Lord himself as Moses set it down. This is actually, let me give you the context of this for just a moment because it's significant. You can go look at it later, but in Exodus 33, I mean, God and Moses are having a conversation that's pretty tough, and some, some of what makes it tough is that Israel has rebelled. God rescued them from Egypt, delivered them from slavery, and they've done nothing but grumble and complain, and they've rebelled against Moses. They've been rebelling against God, and Moses is ready to just end Israel's existence and start over with Moses. But Moses, who God says was the meekest man who ever lived on planet Earth, actually speaks up on behalf of the rebellious people and says, not so, Lord. And so that's a whole story you should read at some point if you're not familiar with it. But tucked into this is a request from Moses to see the glory of God. Moses, this great prophet, says, show me your glory. And in that, uh, in that conversation, God says, I can't, I can't actually show you my face, but I'll pass by and you can see backside of my glory, if, as it were. And you know, one of, the, one of the aspects or character traits of God that he reveals to Moses at that point is mercy. I mean, that's, that's one of those moments where I think, what does mercy look like? Well, it's not so much what it looks like, but God passes by and he pronounces these words and others, and, and that's what Paul is quoting here. So in that context, listen to this, as God is revealing his nature, his glory to Moses, one of the things that he says in Revelation to him is this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God doesn't just choose to have mercy on people arbitrarily, it's part of his nature. In the same way that the sun didn't decide to shine this morning, I know the sun is not a living entity, it's created by God, but it's the nature of the sun to shine. 
because it's the nature of the sun to be you know, this continual eruption and explosion, combustion of you know, all kinds of gases at the fervent heat you know, that it burns. And aren't you glad we're this many million miles away so we're not incinerated every day you know, being too close or frozen to death because we're too far away? God is merciful as a manifestation of his nature. We lose sight of that so frequently, don't we? We lose sight of it when we come to a text like this because all we can focus on is that it seems like God made a choice and it's favorable for Jacob, but it's unfair for Esau. It's favorable for Isaac, but it's unfair for Ishmael. It's favorable for Israel as a nation, but it's unfavorable to Egypt. In, in one sense, it can look like that. Let me try to illustrate it this way. One of my theology teachers years ago used this, so I'm borrowing it from him. Um, but I'm gonna tweak it a little bit to, to make it more personal for us. Let's say that I go back to the children's church right now, and I walk in that room. Daniel, how many people, how many children would I expect to find? 40-ish? Maybe, oh, 15. If we include all of them, nursery, whatever. So whether it's 15 or, or we gather the whole group of them, but I walk in, in the middle of that, little, that crowd of little people with one ice cream cone, and I choose one child to step forward. Billy, I'll use you as an example. I know you're not like one of our children, but if I say, Billy, I have an ice cream cone for you, and I want you to enjoy this right now. And, and Billy, in the middle of all those other children, enjoys that ice cream cone. What's going to happen in that room? War. Yes, war, riot. <laughs> and the ones who are able to articulate it this way will probably say what? That's not fair. fair. You know, because when you're five and you see something good like that that you desire that somebody else has but you don't have, it seems unfair. But let's say I haul out an ice cream cone in this assembly of adults, mature, wise, <laughs> seasoned by life adults, and I literally hand it to Billy here in the second row and I say, Billy, here's something special for you. There might be a few of you who would say, hey, what about me? And I could, I, I know who some of you would be who would say that. <laughs> and a lot of us would struggle that we weren't included, yet at the same time, our maturity, and, and under, we, have a, we bring a different understanding as adults. You didn't walk into church today with the expectation that everybody here deserves a treat, and I didn't get mine. It's not fair. And you know, it's easy to look at what's going on here and, and have an immature view of life. That fair is somehow that everybody gets a treat. Let's back all the way up to Romans 3, where Paul was laying it out. And this is true of both Jew and Gentile, right? And he said things like this. There's not one among us who is righteous. There's no one truly who does good. No one who seeks after God. As a matter of fact, all are under sin. And then you read all the way to, to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And that's fair. That every single one of us, because of sin, not only is excluded from a cheat, if I can put it that way, or excluded from mercy, but that we actually receive condemnation and judgment. That would be fair. Now, this would be devastating to kids, but if I could illustrate it this way, it'd be like, you know, if you walk back into that kid's room and, and you start, like, listing all of the sins and said, line it up, everybody here deserves a spanking. Now, I know that. Some of you are like, oh, my word, what has happened to Danny? 
Mercy would be that God walks into the room of planet Earth and even rescues one person. But you know, he's done far more than that, hasn't he? There are millions and millions and millions through the history of humanity that he has rescued. He drives this point home a little deeper uh, by bringing out the illustration of Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. And God is merciful, but he's also sovereign. And this, this, is, this is strong meat, if you will. But like a fine cut of meat, chew it slowly, chew it carefully, and savor it, because there's truth here that ultimately is intended to bless, and truth here that, that really will rescue some from wrong conclusions and wrong thinking. In verse 17, Paul says, to Pharaoh, the Lord spoke, and he spoke through Moses and Aaron. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, Moses and the Israelites, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's Pharaoh. You know, the term harden, if you go back to the book of Exodus and read that account where Moses and Aaron come repeatedly into the presence of Pharaoh, 14 times you encounter the word harden. And clearly it has the, the connotation of, of, of Pharaoh becoming spiritually insensitive to the word of God. Now, in the context of this, of, of this particular chapter of Paul's letter, think of how God bore patiently with Pharaoh, not just for those few days that Moses and Aaron were coming in, but for, for the decades that he had mistreated the children of Israel, enslaving them, brutalizing them, building his treasure cities on the backs of their slave labor, forcing them into impossible scenarios and situations, and, and, and again, creating and expanding his reputation in the world at their expense. Think of how God sent Moses and Aaron into him day after day. The, the messengers of God appearing in his court with warnings and promises. If he would have let the nation of Israel go at the very first request, he would never experience plague one or plague ten. And the last was the most painful for him because it cost him his firstborn son. And as you read through that story, you will see there are two subjects with the verb harden. One is Pharaoh himself. He hardened his heart, but you will also read that God hardened him. Ten plagues, multiple powerful signs and miracles from God through Moses and Aaron, and yet Pharaoh remained hardened, even to the point that after his, his firstborn son is destroyed and and Israel is on its way out of the nation, he sends his army to bring them back, and the great Red Sea miracle unfolds, and Pharaoh is devastated in every way, both because he hardened his heart and because God hardened him. There's an important warning here for us, lest any of us think that we can remain in our sin for a season and then choose at the moment of our decision to turn to God. I submit to you that at some point in there, and I couldn't tell you where it is, but because of, of Pharaoh's rebellion, he could no longer do what was even rational 
persisting in sin will harden any of us, and refusing God's call will harden you. We'll leave this for next week, but I'll just touch on it. At the end of this chapter, there's an explanation that many Israelites ultimately failed to achieve the salvation God offered them because they were unwilling to pursue it by faith. And Paul's big point, going back to the text here, is that God is merciful, but God is sovereign. And if he chooses to raise up somebody like Pharaoh to display a different aspect of his character, a different aspect of his, of his glory, he has the absolute right to do it. That ought to make you tremble. It does me. So then look again at the text. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? This is difficult truth. That's a tough question. We might even recast that in one way and say, well, God's condemnation of a sinner like Pharaoh appears to be unfair because after all, it, it says more times in Exodus than it, uh, that God hardened him than it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So why does he still find fault? Why would he condemn someone if he made them that way? Well, again, let's, let's look closely at how Paul answers this. Verse 20 is not satisfying initially, but it's still God's truth, isn't it? And what does he say? Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Remember my opening illustration? The dad conversation? There comes a point where a child who doesn't have the wisdom, age, experience, or even the depth of love in his heart, who might disagree with a decision or a work that his father is doing, just has to let dad be dad. And in many ways, God is stepping forward saying, this is who I am. I'm God, you're not, let me be God. In the same way, if you had parents who loved you enough to teach you this, you don't talk back to parents. In my household, we were always able to make appeals, but we can never, I mean, like, I never got in my dad's face. And it wasn't because I was worried he'd give me his backhand and, you know, knock me across the room. I just, he taught us early on, you, you don't get in my face or your mom's. We love you. We're committed to caring for you, but we are your authority. We don't get in God's face. We don't talk back to him. You can talk straight to him. That's another conversation. You can look at the Psalms, but, but you don't get in God's face and say, what right do you have? Who are you, God? No, this is one of those times where we humble ourselves. Job had to be brought to this place, and he reached that conclusion at the end of a really hard season of life where he lost everything and his conclusion is this, I am of small account. What shall I answer you, God? I lay my hand on my mouth. You see, personally, he had to come to the place to say, God, you, you have the right to do with me whatever you want. Take my children, take my wealth, take my health, take my close friendships. You're God, I'm not. And, and this is one of those moments. Secondly, look at verses 22 and 23. What if, or but if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath like Pharaoh, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he's prepared before him for glory. God is absolutely free to reveal his character as he wills. And if he, if he wants to create a character like Pharaoh so that we can understand the, God's justice and wrath, and, and what his condemnation and discipline looks like, God has that prerogative. Isn't it interesting that woven into that strong statement of sovereignty, though, he, that, that Paul touches on the fact that God also endures with much patience. 
Paul had said something similar back in chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think there is an aspect of this where if, if Pharaoh had humbled himself and repented, that story might have played out very differently. Would have. That's why Paul, though he believes in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, can make such strong appeals to his fellow Jews who've rejected Messiah to this point to repent of their sins and believe. It's why we read from 1 Timothy 1 earlier, that whole portion of Paul's testimony where he says, I I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, God never says, hey, figure out if you're one of the chosen ones like Isaac or Jacob or David. No, he just says, repent and believe. Come to me. Come to me. Well, that brings us to verse 24, and I love that this after such strong truth that God sets this before us again, that he is absolutely free to bestow his mercy as he wills. Now again, in its context, because Paul seems to be writing specifically about the Jews and perhaps even to the Jews, many of them would say, you know, the, the Gentiles are not the chosen ones. They're not the ones who have, you know, a right to these privileges and these promises of God, but that's not what God said both in the Old Testament and it's not what he said in the New Testament and it's not what he's doing now. And so we come again to this quotation from Hosea. This is God himself speaking through the prophet. Those who were not my people, Gentiles, I will call my people. What? They're not descended from Abraham. Oh, not physically, but spiritually, because Abraham was a man of faith, and any Gentile who exercises faith will have a share in the family of God. And look at this again. They were previously called, or not called, my people. But God's the one who steps forward and says, um, I've got a new name for you, a new identity. That gives hope to, this, to those of us who, who grew up in context where, I mean, we had no religious connection or no religious affiliation. God is looking for those who will simply put their faith and trust in him. It gives hope to very religious people who may be coming to the conclusion like the way I grew up is not actually consistent with what the Bible teaches and I was really sincere and so were my parents and maybe multiple generations but I'm seeing something different here. Would would God make room for us? Yeah, absolutely. He's not only free to show mercy, he delights to show mercy. And even verses 28 and 29, though they use phrases like God promised a remnant would be saved and only a a few Jews, comparatively speaking, the point is he shows mercy repeatedly. He calls Gentiles, he calls Jews, and Paul is the personal illustration of God's work still among uh, the, the Israelites of his day and it continues into our day. There may be others of you here who actually have Jewish DNA. Uh, Wendy Masinkas is the only one I'm aware of at this point. I'm so sorry that I missed uh, their story of salvation at the membership signing. I was out of town, but when Matt rehearsed that to me, I mean, I had not heard some of those details, but she's actually a living example of this. 
grew up in a very committed Jewish home, heard the Old Testament scriptures uh, all her life, but it never came to life in her until one day God had her in the right place at the right time. And that, that whole story, you'll just have to let Matt tell it to you today. The Masinkas aren't here. Let Wendy tell it to you when they get back in town. But it's just a reminder that, oh yeah, God does call both Jew and Gentile. Fair is that every one of us receives God's holy justice for our real sins committed against him. But in mercy, God substituted his son 2,000 years ago in the place where we should have died. In mercy, he condemned Jesus, crushed him under the weight of our sin, made him to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in mercy, stands before us today and says, come. Three thoughts before we wrap it up here, and you've been very patient this morning. All of this, though, we need to put into practice in the shadow of the cross. See that right side of the screen? Because that cross work of Jesus casts its shadow across planet Earth today, right now. The shadow of the cross looms large in Romans 9. And if we get hung up in in some of the theological nuances and debates, we'll miss the larger point. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. He does what he wills, when he wills, with whom he wills. But woven into that is this powerful truth that God is merciful. You know, there's never been a, a, probably a greater evangelist, witness, missionary, if you will, than the Apostle Paul. And you look at his life and, and learn some lessons. What does he do with these great truths? And you know, one of the things that he does, first of all, is he gets out of God's way. He's just gonna let God be God. And we need to do the same thing. You know, even in preparing this message this week, I had moments where I'm like, Lord, first of all, I, I'm not sure I fully understand this, that I could explain it well, or that really scares me, and it might scare gospel hope, so maybe I shouldn't say it as clearly or, or strongly, and, and the Lord just had to say to me, I can defend my own reputation. Just speak the truth. That, so that's a very personal, specific application for me to just get out of the way and let God be God. I hope I've not confused the text today. But you know, there may be other moments in the coming week where you're like, God, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense to me. I've surrendered my life to you fully and, and, and you've promised to bless and protect and keep, but this diagnosis was something I never saw coming. This is life-altering stuff. God, where are you? That's where in love and mercy, he may say to you, just let me be God right now. Trust me. In time, I'll answer. In time, I'll make it clear. But today, it's not. Let me be God. Second thing, pray big. I'm borrowing that phrase from one of the men in our Friday men's meetup as we were reading in Colossians, but it fits here as well. I know some of you have family and friends who they, they want nothing to do with God at this moment. Just not interested at all. But this God is able. And if he was merciful enough to, uh, to work in the family situation remember how it said before those neither one of those boys had done had done good or evil god was at work in his purposes well you know what that that's fuel for our prayers god is able pray big pray prayers that just seem to go way beyond your imagination or even your rationality when they're consistent with god's truth it honors him the number three share often 
It's interesting how there are some who have so twisted and distorted these very truths of God's sovereignty that they get really careless and passive and inactive when it comes to, to proclaiming the good news that Jesus saves. Well, that is the absolute wrong conclusion. It's unbiblical, and God never puts the truth of his sovereignty forward that we could become complacent and go, well, you know, God's gonna do it after all. And No, he's ordained you and me. We're gonna see that in the next chapter, which I can't wait to get to. I'd like to go on preaching that, but I've already preached way too long, and there are children's workers who need to be rescued, at least given an ice cream cone back there because they've <laughs> labored longer. Um, but thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Father, these are stout truths for us in so many ways, and yet we rest in knowing that you are the perfect God, the all-wise God, the God whose heart is full of love and grace and mercy and compassion as well as perfect holiness and righteousness and justice and truth. We as imperfect and, and finite human beings can't quite pull all of these marvelous and perfect attributes together, but we trust you. And at this moment, we bow before you and affirm that you are God and we are not. Do all your holy will. Accomplish all of your divine purposes and, and cause your mercy to roll through our hearts, to roll through this congregation and roll through this community because there are so many among us, Lord, who need to be rescued. So thank you for these powerful promises. Accomplish your purpose in us this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.